So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. All right, Revelation chapter 7, I will read the first eight verses. That will be what we consider tonight. So John writes, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, each holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So last time on April 18th, when we looked at this, we looked at the end of Revelation chapter 6. And that in that lesson, we saw the fifth and the sixth seal. So just a brief uh, recap of where we are. Uh, chapter 6 is the breaking of the seals of on that scroll that was handed to the Lamb. So if you remember from chapters 4 and 5, you had the, the, throne, the scene of the throne room in heaven. You had uh, the one who sits upon the throne held in his right hand a seal that was scrolled, or sorry, a scroll that was sealed with seven seals written on the front and on the back. And everyone was lamenting because no one was worthy to be found to open it. And then comes the Lamb, the line of the tribe of Judah, and it was handed to him. The scroll was handed to him. And then in, the, in chapter 6, the lamb then starts peeling off one by one these, uh, these seals on the scroll. And it starts to unleash the judgment of God upon the world during this period of time that we're looking at called the church age. So these first four seals, represented by four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, represent the signs of the end. It is called the beginning of birth pangs. Women, you know what birth pangs are. Right? If you have given birth to a child, you know what birth pangs are. It's that moment when you realize that baby's going to come soon. Maybe not in five seconds, but that baby is coming soon. And that's what these are. The judgment is coming. Maybe not in five seconds, but judgment is coming soon. It's the warm-up for final judgment. And then we got to the fifth and the sixth seals. That was last time. And these two seals taught us two things. First, the fifth seal shows us the martyrs under the altar in the heavenly throne room. These are people who have been slain because of their testimony that they maintain. So these are people during this period of time that we're looking at, which we argue is from the, re the resurrection of Christ all the way to the return of Christ, the church age. I'm just going to call that the church age. Okay, That's the period of time from the resurrection to when Christ returns. We're calling that the church age. And the people that are there under the altar are those who have died because of the testimony that they have given, the, the, the witness that they provide to the, to the gospel and to the church. So they're slain because of their testimony. And these martyrs then cry out, asking the Lamb for vengeance. Vindicate us, O Lord. Vindicate us. How long are we going to suffer under this altar while the wicked still rule on the earth? And then the Lamb gives them a word of comfort. It says, just wait a little longer. Just wait a little longer. It'll be, you know, everything will be okay. Here's a white robe and just rest and wait. The sixth seal shows us the terror that we see of the unbeliever as they realize that the day of the Lord has finally come upon them. And we see all sorts of end times judgment language here earth shaking, the sun not giving its light, the stars falling from the heaven, 
All these things are signs of judgment coming. And here, this is the, the sixth seal is that finally, you know, the day of the Lord is finally upon us. But rather than repent of their sins, the collected people on the earth, they cry out. It's interesting how the martyrs cry out for vindication and how the wicked cry out saying, hide us. <laughs> hide us from the terror of the lamb and from his wrath. We don't want to face him. It is interesting that they, they don't repent. They don't repent of their sin. Rather than repent of their sin, they would rather be hidden from God, right? And how successful do you think that plan is going to be to try to hide from God's judgment? Not very successful, right? Okay. And we argued then, based on our interpretive stances, we've been saying that this sixth seal represents the end of this current age and the return of Christ in judgment. As I've been arguing all along, in fact, all the seven seal judgments represent the period of time that we're calling the church age. And then that passage, the one we looked at last time, ends with a kind of a cryptic question. And we kind of left it hanging and dangling there. Sort of like, you know, you watch the old serials when you're growing up and, you know, you get, you're left with that cliffhanger. It's like, you know, wait until next week. Tune in next week. Find out what happens to our hero. Uh, I grew up watching the old Adam West Batman, and it seemed every episode ended with, you know, tune in next time, same bat channel, same bat time, to find out what's going to happen to Batman. Will the Joker get him? All these things. Well, this question is asked, who is able to stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? That's what the wicked say. When that sixth seal is open and all these end-time judgment symbols appear, and they realize that the day of the Lord is upon them, they ask, who is able to stand? And that's where we left it last time. Well, as we look now into our passage this evening, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, where we stand so far is at the tail end of the first of seven cycles that we see in Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 20. It's broken out into seven cycles. And if you remember, I mentioned how these cycles are not meant to be consecutive, you know, linear progression. It's, it's a, I'm a sports guy, so the way I look at it is I think of it as the different camera angles you see at a sporting event. So you've got one camera angle that looks at it from the sideline, the end zone camera, the overhead camera, the goal line camera. All of them are looking at the same play from different perspectives. So this is the first cycle of judgment. It kind of focuses mostly on the kind of progressive judgment that you see being revealed as these seals are broken off. But before the seventh and final seal, the scroll is broken, presumably signifying the return of Christ in glory, John is given an interlude with two visions in chapter 7. You see the phrase there in chapter 7, verse 1, after this. In other words, after the breaking of the sixth seal, I saw something else, a new vision that comes. And this vision then sets out, these, these interludes sets out to answer that question. So the question is, who shall stand? Well, I'm going to give you another vision. Jesus says, I'm going to give you another vision to answer that question. I'll let you know who's going to stand. Now, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of opinions on how to interpret the visions that we see here in Revelation 7. And I'm going to provide the view that represents, at least for the most part, if you can consider a general consensus among the Reformed, I'm going to provide that view. Now, I hesitate to say general consensus, because I, sometimes I feel like if you, just, if you get any 10 Christians in a room, you're going to get 10 different opinions on the view of the end times. I, th I think if you get t 10 reformed people in the same room, you're probably going to get like 11 different views on the end times because someone will, have, will probably have changed their view at least once at some point. But I'm going to try to present what I believe is the general consensus among the reformed as far as how to interpret Revelation 7. But there is another view that has risen to ascendancy in the past 150, 200 years or so namely the dispensationalist view. So how many people here are familiar with either like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth or have read the Left Behind books? But anyway, that view is called the dispensationalist view, and it's very popular. 
In fact, the dispensationalist view is probably the majority report among most evangelical Christians. If you were to ask your run-of-the-mill evangelical Christian, what do you believe is, happens in Revelation? And they'll probably give you some form of the dispensationalist view. So we'll look a little bit at that. But even heretical sects like the Jehovah's Witnesses have a view on the 144,000. We're going to look at these views, not in depth, but we're going to look a little bit at them as we look at this passage. But this, this passage tonight, verses 1 through 8, can be broken down basically into two parts. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see this little vision of the angels and the seal. And then in verses 4 through 8, the, the numbering of those who are sealed, the 144,000 of Israel. Now, as we come into this, as we come out of chapter 6, we've seen those first six seals are kind of broken off rapidly. You know, as rapidly as the Bible explains things, but they're kind of staccato fashion. He broke the first seal, the second seal, the third seal, the fourth seal, and the fifth, and the sixth. And so all these things are happening in six, in chapter six, like boom, 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 and here we go. And then as we come to the seventh, as, as you're expecting the seventh seal, right? Because like, well, there's seven seals in the scroll. What about the seventh seal? It doesn't open yet. It's paused. We're taking a break. And it's like almost like this dramatic tension is being introduced into the narrative here to sort of, you know, hold off on the seventh seal. We're going to have an interlude vision here. And in this delay, this pause here in Revelation 7, we're introduced to two visions. And as I said, the first one we're going to look at tonight, verses 1 through 8. And this vision deals with the sealing of Israel during this period of time represented by the seven seals, the church age. Now, obviously, then, how you interpret this period of time we're looking at will determine how you interpret the 144,000 verses 4 through 8. Okay? And we'll consider that in a little bit. But for now, our vision is introduced in verse 1, where we see, after this, I saw. So, again, that same formula that introduces a new vision. After I saw the last vision, I'm seeing a new one now. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So the vision begins with John seeing four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds. What's going on here? Four, four, four. That sounds like a breakfast meal at Denny's, right? The four by four by four meal. Of course, I think it's two by two by two. I would love it if it was four by four by four. Four eggs, four bacon, four whatever, <laughs> pancakes. But four, four, four. Let's look at the number four. When John sees four angels at the four corners of the earth, what does this suggest? What do you think the four corners of the earth suggests? Every direction on the compass. Right, Exactly. The four corners represent the totality of creation. North, south, east, west. All on into infinity. So these four angels are sort of they're over all of creation. And they're holding back these four winds. Now these four angels are closely related to the four horsemen that we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 6. The, the vision of the four horsemen is drawn out of Zechariah's prophecy. In chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 5 of Zechariah, uh, we read, The angel replied to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. So these four angels, as I said, probably are, are the same creatures as the four horsemen who are in charge of judgment. These are the angelic spirits who carry out God's judgment upon the world. And here they're holding back now the four winds from blowing. So they're, they're there to keep the winds from blowing. The third thing we see here is that the four winds that are being held back suggest that judgment is being delayed. Because the winds typically in the scriptures represent judgment. Jeremiah 49, verse 36. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven and will scatter them 
to all these winds, and there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will not go. So we see this prophecy in Jeremiah talking about these four winds. When you guys are, okay, we're in Nebraska, right? Wind, a good thing or a bad thing? Typically, if the wind is blowing at 100 miles an hour, is that good or bad? Very bad, particularly for you corn farmers. Wind, bad. Wind, judgment, okay? Wind brings destruction when it's really blowing. So we have this scene of the angels of God's judgment being held back for a purpose, which we'll see in verse 3. But this suggests something that we've mentioned at various points in our studies so far, is that the visions are not chronological. It's not a chronological telling of events, and that's where our dispensational brothers and sisters go wrong. They read Revelation in a linear fashion. So this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and then this happens. And it's one after the other, after the other, after the other. So it's not seven cycles of judgment. It's like 21 judgments because you've got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. It's like God pours out his judgment. It's like, okay, I'm not done yet. I'm going to pour out my judgment even more. Okay, wait, wait. I got a little bit more. Here we go. More judgment. No, it's seven cycles. But it's not a chronological telling of events. And you're like, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, because if I'm right, and the four angels are the four horsemen, then what's happening here must take place before the breaking of the sixth seal. Because the sixth seal represents the day of the Lord, prior to the return of Christ. But before that can happen, something else must first occur. Something that requires a delay of final judgment. We're like, well, what is that something? That something is the sealing of the bondservants of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. And John says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So in addition to the four angels is another angel. And this one is ascending from the rising of the sun. Now that is, now what does that suggest? The east, right? Okay, he's ascending in the east. Because in the Bible, news of salvation often appears in the east. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So this new angel comes and commands the other four, saying, Do not harm the earth, do not harm the seas or the trees, until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. In other words, judgment must be delayed until the elect are sealed. And to that effect, this new angel now has the seal of the living God. We've looked at this word seal before. It's the same word that we see of the seals on the scroll. Okay? And it, um, this seal, though, we talk about here is more, uh, most often in the form of a signet ring. So if you've, got, you know, if you've seen some of these old movies or whatever, you've got these guys with these fancy rings that's got their seal on it, their crest or whatever. And if they wanted to seal an important document, they'd roll up the document or fold it up, put a little bit of melted wax on it, and then you know, seal it with their ring right there. And it puts their symbol on it. So then now it's sealed and the contents are, are kept secure. That's the same thing happening here. Now the seal for the elect here, the seal for God's bondservants, this seal performs three basic functions. The first, seal, the first function is that the seal identifies us. We are now identified as children of God. We are God's. When God seals us, he's saying, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine. You're all mine. The ones who are sealed are mine. It also authenticates. 
A seal authenticates. So we are assured. Our salvation is assured because we have been sealed by God. And then third and finally, a seal protects, right? The contents of of a letter that was sealed would have been guarded, protected. And we, being sealed by the angel, are now protected. We are preserved, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will see it to its end on the day of Christ Jesus. So the seal identifies, the seal authenticates, and the seal protects And the angel here, the one rising from the east, wants judgment delayed until the full number of the elect have been sealed. All of them. Not just some of them. All of them. So do you know what this means? It means that the Lord will not visit judgment upon his people. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he took the judgment upon himself for our sins. So those who are sealed will not face judgment because judgment has already been executed on Jesus Christ, right? So therefore, the elect are sealed against the day of judgment. If you remember uh, in the Exodus, during the captivity times, when when Israel was in captivity in Egypt, and God starts to rain the plagues down on the Egyptians... But oftentimes he'll say, but in the land of Goshen, where my people are, the, you know, the hailstones will not fall or, you know, whatever will not happen. So there God is able to preserve his people while still visiting judgment on the rest. That's what we see here, where the people are sealed, even though judgment is coming. First Thessalonians five, verse nine, for God has not destined us. For wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So the Lord knows those who are his. He knows how to separate the sheep from the goats. He knows how to make sure that those who are destined for judgment... And those who are not will be you know, preserved. Now this delay in the day of the Lord has moved some to mock. So keep your finger in Revelation. But let's turn just a few pages over to 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter here writes about the coming of the day of the Lord. And starting in verse 3, he says, Know this, first of all, then in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, on the, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Through which the word at that time was destroyed, sorry, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here, Peter is referring to people who, you know, the early Christians would have taught, well, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and when he does, he'll bring judgment. And the people, you know, the mockers, the so-called mockers were like, you know, doing this. Don't see Jesus. Don't know, where's Jesus? You said he's coming. It's been 30 years. It's been 40 years, however long it's been. Where's Jesus? And Peter's like, don't mock. (laughs) The Lord is not slow concerning his promises. He will come. For the Lord doesn't measure time like we measure time, right? That's the whole reference to the days like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. It's not literal. Don't think that, you know, God counts days in millennium, okay? But the point is that God's time frame is not our time frame, Right? 
30, 40 years in that period of time with no return of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that God is up there like, oh, I forgot the return of Jesus Christ. I better send my son. You know, it, it just means that I don't measure time the way you measure time. It's coming. The Lord is not slow regarding his promises. And then he says, he's, he's uh, but um, where does it say? But he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Again, that idea of judgment is being withheld until the full number have been sealed. He wants them all to come to repentance. Not any, for not any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you can flip back to Revelation 7. So now John sees these bondservants sealed on their foreheads. And this was foreseen, again, from the prophet Ezekiel. Remember, you know, I said this way back in the beginning, Revelation... To, a lot of times to understand what's going on in Revelation, you have to have a good understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament prophets because a lot of the visions that John uh, brings in he, or he sees are drawn from this Old Testament imagery that we see. So here in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 9, verses 4 and 6, the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, the seal. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. So again, the prophet Ezekiel sees this vision of the people being sealed, and then judgment comes out, and the, and the Lord says to the angel, don't touch those who have been sealed. Only those who have not been sealed. The Lord knows who those who are his. Now we're not to understand that the saints here literally have some like mark on our foreheads, okay? You know, this has led to some, you know, particularly like when we get to the mark of the beast, people think that's microchips in my wrist. It's like, I don't know if it is or isn't. The point is it's like, we don't know that, okay? It's not like you have some mark here that if you take the special pen light, and shine it on someone's forehead, you know, it kind of reveals this, you know, you know, invisible ink or whatever on your forehead. It's like, oh, I see the seal on your forehead. That's not what it means, okay? What is, though, according to the Bible, the indelible mark that identifies believers from unbelievers? Holy Spirit. There we go. That's what I was looking for. The Holy Spirit is that indelible mark that seals the believers in faith. Because in Paul, in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, in him, this is Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, that is Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, again, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now that phrase there where he says, a pledge of our inheritance. Okay, anybody, you know, I think we've all at some point in our lives have bought a house. Okay, and when you buy a house, you have to give earnest money to indicate, yes, I am serious about buying this house. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not fooling, you know, earnest money. That's the same word here, that pledge. It's like, God's like, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to show you and prove to you my authenticity in saving you. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit as a down payment for the glory that will be yet to come when Christ returns. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. Now, if you remember, here's a quick quiz. What were the three purposes of a seal? Yeah, so identification, authentication, and protection. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us, Right? The Holy Spirit identifies us as children of God. The Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts so that we believe. The Holy Spirit calls us from the world of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of his Son. The Holy Spirit also authenticates to our own hearts that we are children of God. We learn that in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit testifies. The Holy Spirit witnesses to us that we are his children. He, the Holy Spirit allows us to cry out to God saying, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit protects us, preserves us. We persevere because we are preserved by the Holy Spirit. 
So the Christians can rest secure in the knowledge that though the winds of judgment may blow, we are sealed and we are kept secure by the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean we're, can't, we're not going to face persecution. It doesn't mean we're going to be, you know, not face martyrdom. That's what the fifth seal was all about, right? The martyrs under the altar. The, you know, the being sealed by the Holy Spirit does not protect you from, judge, or from, from martyrdom, does not protect you from persecution. That's something that happens to all Christians because it happened to Christ. Christ said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. But we will never be subjected to final judgment. We are secure from final judgment because Christ took that judgment for us and we are now sealed by his Holy Spirit. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the 144,000. Verses 4 through 8. So here in these verses, John then hears the number of those who are sealed. So after the angel says, we need to seal the bondservants of our God, in verses 4 through 8, John hears the number of those who were sealed. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here we have this 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then verses 5 through 8, I'm not going to read it again. But we see a census, okay? If you've read through the book of Numbers, you know the book of Numbers starts with a census where the, the numbers of the children of Israel are counted. And then later on, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, another census is taken. That's why the book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers, because it has numbers in it. <laughs> Lots of numbers. It's a very, very apt title for a book. So here we see the census. How many and from which tribe are taken? Now, we see 12 tribes, and there are 12,000 taken from each tribe. And we'll discuss this in a moment. But now, the million-dollar question is this. If I had a drum roll, I'd do a drum roll. Who are the 144,000? Well, we'll go. I've got three views. Okay. Not, I, not me personally. I have three views listed here in my notes. Um, <laughs> All right, so there are three basic interpretations for the 144,000. The first view is that put forward by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, for them, they view the, you, know, you don't need to write this down because this is a heretical view, but they have a view, so I'm going to look at it. So they look at the 144,000 as a literal number of people, the literal number of people who will spend eternity in heaven. So apparently... Heaven has 144,000 rooms, and once it's full, it's sold out. You can't get a room, and you have to go into, you know, steerage or second class. You know, you've got to go live in the, uh, you know, the projects or what. I don't know how it goes. But you've got 144,000 in heaven, and that's it. And then the rest of us, we are the blessed multitude on earth. I don't know how blessed it's going to be if we're on earth and we're not up in heaven. I'd rather be the number in the heaven, right? Well, there's, this view is overly literalistic, okay? We've talked, you know, I mean, we sometimes chide our dispensationalist brothers and sisters for being maybe a little too literal in their reading of the Bible and, and prophecy, in particular Revelation. This view is like, really literal, okay? I mean, this puts the dispensationalist to shame, okay? This is, a phrase is usually called woodenly literal. That's what this is. It's so stiff and unbending that, 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 you know, it's just overly literalistic. It has no biblical warrant, and it gets things backwards. That's the important thing. It gets things backwards. Because as we see here, the 144,000 are those sealed on, excuse me, they're on the earth. And then later on in verse 9, we see this great multitude before the throne room in heaven. So you've got this vision of the 144,000 sealed on the earth, and then this great multitude before the throne in heaven. Whereas the JWs say, no, the 144,000 are those who are in heaven, and then the rest of us are on the earth. It's completely backwards. It's flipped on its head. So that's the JW view. That's the first view. We can just reject that one. The second one, and this one we need to pay attention to, because, as I said, dispensationalists represent the majority report amongst evangelical Christians. You ask your average Christian on the street, you go anywhere in the Bible Belt, and you ask your average, particularly Baptists, 
you ask your average Baptist or average evangelical on the street, what do you, you, who are the 144,000? They'll probably give you some form of this answer. So they say that the 144,000 are ethnic Jews. How do we know they're ethnic Jews? Because it says they're chosen from the sons of Israel. I'm reading the Bible literally, see? Chosen from the sons of Israel. And then they name 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, so on and so forth. So these 144,000 ethnic Jews convert to Christ. So they were regular just Jews. And then during this period of the Great Tribulation, so the church is raptured out of the world. You've got seven years of tribulation. And then during this period, 144,000 Jews are saved. And then they become witnesses and go out and evangelize and create this great multitude that you see in verse 9, a very tribe, tongue, and nation. So they serve as witnesses, preaching the gospel in the last days. Now, I believe this view falls short because it, too, reads Revelation too literally. Now, remember, dispensationalists, too literal. JW's woodenly literal, okay? It reads it too literally. It unnecessarily separates Jews and Gentiles as different groups of people with different destinies, and their view of the seals is that this will take place in the distant future. Again, for the dispensationalists, Everything we've been reading so far, the seals, all this, everything from chapter 4 onward is way in the future. I mean, way in the future. And that's not the view I've been proposing here. The view I've been proposing is that what we see now in these seals is happening now. It's happening during this entire period from the resurrection to the return of Christ. So that's the dispensationalist view. Third, our view. As I said, this is a general consensus among the reform not all remember i said if you take 11 reform people 10 reform people put them in a room you're going to get 11 views okay well this is the general consensus so the 144,000 represents the fullness ding 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 the fullness of the church the people of god the true israel the number 12 is symbolic of the people of god and then you take that number, 144,000, it's basically broken down into 12 times 12 times 1,000. Right? 12 times 12, 144 times 1,000, 144,000. So 12, the first 12 represents the Old Testament people of God. The second 12 represents the... Don't leave me hanging. The New Testament people of God. 1,000 represents the superlative degree. Now that this number represents the church, let's consider some more arguments. What we'll see something later in Revelation about the new Jerusalem. So turn to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So in chapter 21, starting in verse 10, I'm going to read through verse 16. John's getting another vision. Okay, remember Revelation, all visions. And this is of the new Jerusalem. So he's saying here, this angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of her. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as the stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the, at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three gates in the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke to me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width, and he measured the city with the rod 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Uh, earlier in that chapter 21, we see the new Jerusalem is described as a bride adorned for her husband. And again, that image of a wedding, right? The church is described as the bride of Christ. And here we see the bride coming down adorned for her husband. And now we see the description. The bride is not just a people. It is also a place. It is a city. It is a giant cubic city. Now, it's not, again, this is symbolism. It's not a literally like a cube. I don't know. 
you know, I, I know Mark Bailey is not going to get this reference, but you know, I watched Star Trek The Next Generation. If you know anything about the Borg, okay, okay, Mark Brown is kind of chuckling. Okay, the Borg fly around in these cubic spaceships, okay? So when I, whenever I read this description of the city, of the New Jerusalem, I'm thinking, that sounds like a Borg city. It's just this giant cube, you know, coming down out of heaven. But the point is, is that here you've got this city. It's a cubic city that has 12,000 stadia in each direction, height, width, length. It has 12 gates, you know, 12, again, number the people of God, number 12. And the 12 gates have the 12 names of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And the 12 foundation stones have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God combined. So that's one argument that this 144,000 represents the full number of the people of God. Another argument is, if you look at verses 5 through 8, and you can go back to Revelation 7, sorry. If you look at verses 5 through 8 and we see this listing of the sons of Israel here, or the tribes of Israel. There are a couple of things to note here. First, is that the order is all different from what you see in the Old Testament when they list the sons of the tribes of Israel. Classic example, I'm not going to turn there, but in Genesis 35, uh, verses 23 through 26, this is after Benjamin, the last of the twelve, was born. Then the author, Moses of, of Genesis, gives you all the 12 sons of Israel. And he first lists the six sons of Leah, then the two sons of Rachel, and then the uh, two sons, or the four sons, essentially, of the, of the two concubines. So the, two son, the four sons of the two concubines are last on that list. And now, again, that's not birth order, even. That's order of, okay, first wife, second wife, Concubines. So there's, there's an ordering to those number, uh, the, the way the, the, the sons of Jacob are listed there. Here, in Revelation 7, verses 5 through 8, vastly different. Here are just a few of the differences. First, Judah is listed first. Who was Jacob's firstborn? Reuben. Reuben is listed where? Second. Why is Judah listed first? I don't have, a, I mean, I don't have an, an answer. I'm just asking. Why do you think Judah is listed first? Because Christ, Christ descended from Judah. Right, yeah. That's, that's the most common interpretation is that because Judah produces Jesus, right? He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Judah gets prominence now. So Judah comes first. You, you see that in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons. And, you know, he, he does it in birth order. But when he gets to Judah, he has a much more elaborate blessing for Judah. It's like, it's like Reuben, you're a disappointment. Simeon and Levi, you guys are a little too crazy for me. Uh, you're going to be dispersed throughout the, the, the land. Of, you know, when you get the inheritance, you're going to be dispersed throughout the land because you guys are just a little too violent. Remember Simeon and Levi? They were the guys that when their sister Dinah got raped, they were the ones that concocted the plan to destroy the Shechemites, okay? And then he starts with Judah. So Judah's listed first. Then you've got Reuben. And then you have Gad, Asher, Naphtali. These are sons of concubines. These are three sons, four sons of concubines. We'll talk about Dan in a moment. But three of the four concubine sons are listed. Now they're moved up. They, they sort of are promoted in the list here. And then Dan is left out entirely. Dan is like, where's Dan? I don't know. Dan's gone. In his place is Manasseh, one of Joseph's sons. Not, not a son of Jacob. He's a son of Joseph. But then Joseph's other son, Ephraim, is missing. <laughs> Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim is not listed here. And then Levi is listed. So this list is neither in birth order it's not in any order of the tribes that inherited the land because Levi inherited no land, right? Levi was spread across. The priests would be in all the cities across the, the country. Now, the reason why Dan is left out, possible, well, here's a possible explanation for this ordering. First, the promotions of the sons of the concubines. It is believed this is symbolic of Gentile inclusion. 
okay? Because the concubines probably would have been Gentiles. I mean, really, if you think about it, you know, when, when Jacob went back to get his wives, well, he went to get a wife and ended up with two. But <laughs> when he went to get his wives, he goes back to his home country. So that's somewhere in the Mesopotamia area. And, you know, there's his family. The concubines would have been in the family, but not part of the family. He wouldn't have been related. So this idea of moving or the promotion of the sons of the concubines up higher in the list is symbolic of Gentile inclusion into Israel. Now, the reason why we don't see Dan or Ephraim, why do you think we don't see Dan or Ephraim? Yeah, so Dan in the book of Judges, uh, you see the, this is after you see all the, the, the cycle of the judges. It's after Samson's story. It's sort of like the epilogue to the book of Judges. And you see the story of this, this uh, Levite with his concubine. And then the, the tribe of Dan comes in and they kind of steal the Levite. They steal the, the, the idols and then they set up their own idols. And they say, you will be our priest. You will, you will make sacrifices for us. So Dan is associated with idolatry. And so is Ephraim. Because if you remember when... The kingdom of Israel was split in uh, 1 Kings chapter, I don't remember exactly, 12, 13, give or take, somewhere around there. When Solomon dies, right, and then the kingdom is split. So Solomon's son Rehoboam reigns, and then he is oppressive, and then the northern half splits off under the kingship of Jeroboam. And when Jeroboam sits there, he's like, well, I don't want the people going to Jerusalem to worship, so I'm going to set up my own golden calves. One is going to be in Dan. The other one is going to be in Ephraim. So these golden calves, it's like, what is it with Israel and golden calves? I don't get it. But the point is they make golden calves. They set them up in Dan in the north and Ephraim in the south. So now the people don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship the true way. They can go worship the false way at these golden calves. So that's one reason why they believe those two are excluded. Now, back to the main point. When you add all this together, including also the several places in the New Testament where we see Jew and Gentile included together in one body. Again, Ephesians 2 is a great example of that. Where you see, you know, Jesus, when he dies, he breaks down that wall of separation so that the two can be united into one new man. It becomes quite clear that the 144,000 are not ethnic Jews, but the church. And just one more argument in verse 9. We looked at this a little bit, but John sees another vision, a great multitude which no one could count in verse 9. Well, I'm peeking ahead, but we're going to look at this in three weeks. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Now, the only thing different here between the multitude that we see in verse 9 and the 144,000 that we see in verses 5 through 8 is the location. The 144,000 are on earth. The great multitude is in heaven before the throne. So here we see, if I may have said this before, it's a theological distinction. You see the church militant, the church that's fighting, the church that's struggling on the earth, and the church triumphant, the church that is in heaven now before the throne, worshiping God. That's the difference here. One church on earth, one in heaven. And that here is 144,000. So just wrapping this up now. Who is able to stand? The day of the Lord approaches. God is revealing his wrath daily on the wicked and unbelievers. Who is able to stand? The answer to that question is those who have been sealed, having the Lamb's name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Again, that sign of ownership. You are mine. I have sealed you. The Father and the Lamb have laid claim on their own. They have called them by name. They have set their seal upon them, and they will protect and preserve them firm in their faith until the end. Now, I've been trying to show the connection between what we see in Revelation and what we see in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in, Je in Matthew 24 and 25. That's Jesus' own words about his own return. And I've been trying to show the connections between the, the visions in Revelation and what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel. And in Matthew 24... 
Jesus speaks about the elect and how they are preserved during the great tribulation. You don't need to turn there. You can jot this down if you'd like. But Matthew 24, verses 21 through 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Again, that idea of the elect are sealed. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so to mis- as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So these great signs and wonders performed by these false messiahs are so convincing that it's possible even to mislead the elect, but it's not possible to mislead the elect. And then later on in verse 31 of chapter 24, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, four winds, one uh, from one end of the sky to the other. So again, Jesus knows how to save and preserve those who are undergoing the great tribulation. He is also able to save them and gather them together at the end of the age. And this is a source of great comfort for God's people. Because the heavens may rage, the kings of the earth may rattle their sabers, the wicked may increase, you may see many wolves in sheep's clothing uh, to turn many away, the church may be persecuted, hunted, martyred, but, my favorite word, but God has sealed us with his name. We are his, and nothing can separate us from his love. I'll close with these words from Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how many things can separate us from the love of God? Zero things. Zero things can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.